Welcome to the River Life Podcast. As you listen, we pray that you will encounter Jesus and allow His words to wash you anew. May He reveal more of who He is to your heart. Here's the message for this week. Hi, good morning, church. Uh, Pastor Ben can't be here today. Uh, so originally, I was supposed to preach uh, last week, but uh, he swapped with me uh, because he told me that uh, it's been a tough football season for him, you know. Arsenal almost won the league, but they lost. So he needed the t- time to go back to Sabah to recover. Yeah, because it's very sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> no, he's there to visit his, uh, fam- his, uh, his uh, parents. Yeah, so I'm here today. And uh, I'm be continuing on our book of Acts. And uh, today's the second sermon. And we are going to visit a very familiar passage on Acts 2. Okay? And I'm sure we all know the story of Acts 2, which is actually Pentecost. And uh, I'm going to uh, angle it a little bit different today. And I trust that today you catch uh, the heart of what I'm trying to share with you today. Okay, so before we start, I want to show you this picture. Uh, if I can have the slides on the screen. You can see this uh, very amazing picture of uh, a number of trees behind, right? And a lot of times when we approach Acts 2, which is Pentecost, this is the picture that we see. We see all the beautiful trees, you know. Okay, they're not so beautiful. The trees, the, 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 the what's that? The stem, not stem. The bug, lah, okay, whatever. Lah. Sorry, my biology not very good. Okay, yeah, it's biology, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, you see all of that. And then, and then it's like, that is the only thing that captures your attention. But actually in this picture, if you notice very, very intently, you will see that actually the key thing about this picture is an owl. Can you see the owl? Oh, yeah, okay. Finally awake already. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so actually the key, the key um, a hero of the picture is actually the owl. But it's camouflaged among all the other things there. And sometimes when you look at Acts chapter 2, right, it can be a little bit like that. That we focus so much on the trees, the, the greenery and all that, but we forget actually the main character in that picture is actually something else. And on to bring us to that place where um, hopefully we catch, you know, the heart of Acts 2. What is it that Luke wants to communicate with us, alright? So having said that, I'm going to bring us through Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read a couple of verses, not the whole thing. And then, uh, yeah, we'll see how we go from there, alright? Okay, chap- uh, chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parsians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, uh, Pontus and Asia, um, pre- Ah, shakababa. Okay. Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and uh, proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Okay, basically the whole world around. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. 
and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. And verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, sorry, this is verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Father, a name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's commit the time to the Lord. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we want to come before once again your word. And we acknowledge, O Lord, that your word is so wonderful, that your word is our compass in life, O Lord, and your word reveals wonderful things about our relationship with you, O Lord. Sometimes it's just so wonderful, we can't even comprehend it or grasp it, O Lord. And God, this day, even as we come to this very familiar passage of Acts 2, Father, I pray that it will not just be words written on the screen or words written in our Bibles, Lord, but the words will come alive in our hearts and the words will reveal the person of Jesus Christ, the, the person of God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit to us afresh this very day. So, Lord, we ask, Lord, this day, come and speak to our hearts. Come and speak to us as the church, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone say... Uh, sorry, I choked on my sliver. <clears throat> the typical focus of Pentecost, um, if you hear a lot of sermons, is like they always focus on you know the Holy Spirit coming in power and baptizing people uh, in in His power, and therefore after that, you no, know, their whole lives change. So there's a lot of focus on the power that the Holy Spirit gives. You know, while that is true, right? If you look at Pentecost and you look at the historical context of it, right, it does paint a very different picture from what we are what normally you hear around in the world when people talk about Acts chapter 2 okay the typical sermon is like they'll talk about you know holy spirit come then they use the word dunamis use greek you know dunamis you know means dynamite power and all that then at the end of it they'll share maybe a little bit about their story about what happened to them or in their ministry and then they'll end the whole service by saying uh, what's that song uh? Consuming fire, yeah, stir it up in the right? So that's a typical type of sermon that you will hear on Acts chapter 2. But today, I want to show you that actually the heart of Acts 2 may be something a little bit different. Maybe something totally different altogether than just the power of the Holy Spirit. And to do that today, I'm going to bring us through a little bit of uh, history study as well as Bible study, okay? You're okay today? Can I? Uh? We can go through that, huh? Alright, so... Let's start with the origins of Pentecost. A lot of people think that Pentecost began at Acts chapter 2. But actually, 
Pentecost has its origins in the Old Testament. Okay, very but uh, more particularly, it's actually in Leviticus uh, chapter twenty-three, verses fifteen to twenty-two. It is known as the festival of weeks, the festival of weeks, and it starts on the Sabbath after the Passover, and for fifty days it goes on for fifty days, seven weeks. Okay, uh, so Israel is amazing. Like, like there's so many holidays. No? Very jealous of them. You know, ours Chinese New Year only three days. Okay, then finish with it. But for them, it goes on for fifty days, and this is just one festival. Okay, now why the word Pentecost? Because in the festival of weeks, if you look at the Hebrew, it actually says Kach Shabuot, which means the festival of weeks. Shabuot has its root in the word Shava, which is actually seven, seven weeks. They celebrate this festival, okay, and therefore you translate that um, into um, Greek. You get the word "penta," which is actually fifty, okay. And the Jewish word for uh, yeah, the Jewish word <coughs> "shavah" means seven, which is seven weeks. And Leviticus twenty-three verse sixteen, it says this: "You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall pre- uh, present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord." So the festival of weeks is actually one of the very major festivals in the nation of Israel, uh, uh, aside from Passover as well as the festival of the Tabernacles. Okay, and the Jews were actually commanded by God during the time of Moses all the way. You know, they're commanded to come and present an offering of grain to the Lord because the festival of weeks begin uh, on the first day of the harvest of wheat. Okay, so it's a celebration of the harvest that the Lord provided and we give our first fruits to the Lord. So they are literally commanded to present a new grain to the Lord. And this is what the Lord says in uh, verse 16 of chapter 23, that the Jews were commanded to present an offering. Uh, they take the new grain and then they grind it into fine flour and they need to bake two loaves of bread to offer unto the Lord. Okay, and then on top of that, they have to give seven lambs, which is, is one year and below. Seven lambs, one bull, and two rams. That's a lot of animals to sacrifice. It shows you how major the feast is. And here's the thing. Every able-bodied Jewish man is supposed to bring all this offering to come to Israel every year, every year during this festival and to offer it unto the Lord. Okay, so it's a very major festival. Okay? Now, I will just stop there and I'll continue on this later on, alright? But before diving into the whole sermon um, uh, body, right, I want to just uh, talk a little bit about the location of where Pentecost happened in Acts chapter 2, okay? We have seen that it's actually an Old Testament festival, major festival uh, in, in the Jewish culture, Jewish nation. So now let's look at the location of Pentecost. Now, many people assume that Pentecost happened at the upper room. All right? But if you really study Acts chapter 2, you will see that nowhere does it say that they were in the upper room when Pentecost happened. It simply says that they were all together in one place, in one accord. And that's where the joke always comes. What car would the disciples buy? Honda. Because they were one accord. Okay? <clears throat> yeah. So if you go to... <laughs> okay? 
So a lot of people, they, but the thing is that it is the upper room, you know, they were all in the upper room and then the spirit came, filled them, you know, but there's a lot of issues if you place Pentecost in the upper room, alright? If you go to Israel today, you will, um, they will bring you to this place, if you join one of the tours, called the Senecal. I've never been there, okay, so this is what I read, okay? This place called the Senecal and um, if you can show the picture... Okay. Traditionally, this is the place where the Last Supper happened. Okay, traditionally. Okay, and if you can you can see that maybe there's about 10, 20 people there. Okay, and the room is almost like one third few already. 10, 20 people. <clears throat> all right. So this is the upper room, and this is not your typical Jewish home. It's quite big already. All right. In fact. I think Singapore, if you stay like that, why you're very happy already because it's so big, right? Yeah. So if this is the place where the the Pentecost happened, right? I think they will struggle to contain not just the disciples, but the three thousand people that got saved. It's impossible for it to happen in the upper room. Okay. So I want to counter propose this, and there's a reason for me doing this. I believe that Pentecost happened actually in the temple of Jerusalem. Very, uh, more specific, it happened on the eastern stairwell in the Temple of Jerusalem. Why is this significant? I'll share with you later on, okay? So you must stand to the end of the sermon to find answers, okay? But Acts chapter 2 actually gives us some clues, alright? The first clue is this. Uh, it's actually found in Luke 24. After Jesus ascended into heaven, it says this, that the disciples were continually in the temple, praising God, blessing the Lord. So they were in the temple almost every other day. So that's one of the first clue. The second clue is this. For those, um, Acts chapter 2 verse 15 says that for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third day, uh, third hour of the day. The third hour of the day is 9 a.m. 9 a.m. is the time for Jews to go to the temple to pray. So no man will actually be in the house they will all be in the temple. What more? It is a festival of weeks. All the men all over the region will be gathered at the temple to present all their sacrifices to the Lord. So it is highly unlikely that they are in the, <clears throat> in the upper room. Very, very unlikely. Okay, Because the whole world, the whole Jewish nation is there in the temple of Jerusalem. What more? 9 a.m., the time of prayer. Okay, So, Acts 2 also talks about the Spirit coming and fill the house. So a lot of people take that as the upper room. No, they must be in a house. But actually in Hebrew, right, the house is actually a short form for the house of the Lord. They simply just call it the house. The house. The house. Okay, and that's, that's probably one of the explanations. Now let me show you a little, uh, a couple of pictures on the Eastern Temple entrance. <clears throat> Okay, if you go to Jerusalem, um, this is the Eastern Temple. Okay, okay, I'm your tour guide now. Okay, this is the Eastern Temple. This is the stairwell that has been rebuilt. So last time not so nice one. Okay, last time the thing is a bit more. Um, um, if you look at the next picture, you can see the original steps, and you can see the steps that have been rebuilt. All right, and one of the features that you will notice immediately about the stairwell is this: that the steps are all uneven. Different length, okay, and some of them I, I believe is also different height, okay. And so, when you walk up the steps to the temple, right, you cannot walk like how you walk up to level three today because you really must pay attention to every single step 
because you never know, you know which is the next step. Okay, it's not predictable. And it brings us actually to the passage in Ecclesiastes that says, you know, guard your steps when you enter into the temple of the Lord, when you enter into the house of the Lord. Okay, they really took it lit- uh, literally. Okay, now, why is this um, entrance very, very significant? Because this is the only place everybody else can enter if you're not a priest or Levite. This is the only entrance you go in. Okay, now the entrance is sealed already. But before that, there were actually three doors, three gates, and you enter through there. Everyone that's not a priest, you know, you're not in the worship team, you're not the speaker, you know, you enter through this place. That is the only place you can go. So the whole world, so all the Jews that were coming from all over, they would have been gathered at this place at 9 a.m. in the morning to enter to offer their sacrifices. Okay. Now, the last clue as to where Pentecost happened is this. Those who received his word were baptized, and uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, and added that day were 3,000 souls. Okay, 3,000 souls. And they had to baptize that day 3,000 new converts to the faith. If, you, if it happened in the upper room, right, the poor bathroom cannot contain 3,000 souls for baptism. Okay? So the only logical place has to be in the temple in Jerusalem. Why? Because if you look at this next picture, you will see that all around that stairwell that I mentioned just now, there's actually a lot of pools. Why? Because they need to purify themselves before they enter into the temple. So the baptism pool is easily available. And by the way, if... You know, the scripture says they spoke in tongues and it, it garnered a lot of attention all over, right? Now, if you speak in tongues in a Ulu location somewhere in Jerusalem, right, nobody is going to hear you. The only logical place where this can happen is at the temple. Why? Because everybody is there. Okay, for example, right, if something happened, right, uh, something happened in Singapore, right, if it happens in the Ulu place of, um, my mind is not working today, where is that, uh, Lim Chukang, okay, in some funny road, you know, like, none of us will know anything about it, right, okay, but if it happens somewhere in town, you, everybody in Singapore know about it, right, so it's the same thing, it happened right at the steps, of the of Jerusalem temple and that's where everybody gathered everyone from every nation okay they were all there if you look at the next map you will see all the nations the Jews from all the various nations they were all gathered in Jerusalem for the festival of the weeks and they were there at the staircase 9 a.m. in the morning and they were not late <laughs> okay they were all there ready with all their sacrifices okay ready to offer to the Lord and when the Holy Spirit came upon them, every nation can see them. Every nation. They wouldn't have been in some Ulu upper room somewhere that you know, all these people would not be able to find them. Okay? So because of that, <clears throat> I believe strongly that Pentecost happened in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, why is this important? All right? You have to stay to the end of the sermon. Okay? So, Pentecost, we, we understood what it's all about. It's a festival of weeks. And, be, and how they become Pentecost, uh, we're not too sure. All right? But somewhere along the line, uh, the Jewish uh, rabbis and Jewish scholars and all that, they changed the term uh, from festival of weeks to Pentecost. Okay? And it shows that in early writings, that actually before the birth of Christ, you know, they already call it Pentecost. 
okay, before the birth of Christ. Subsequently, the Jews began to observe Pentecost as commemorating the day when the law was given on Mount Sinai to the Israelites. Okay? Now, <clears throat> what is the logic for that? The logic is this, that in Exodus 19, you find that Israel arrived at Sinai three months after the Passover. So the rabbis, they actually speculated three months is about 50 days. You know, after the Passover, they arrived at Mount Sinai, Pentecost, 50 days. Okay, so that's why, that's how it became Pentecost and they commemorated uh, as the day the law was given by God to Moses. Okay, now, this is a little bit of history, okay? Now, let me get into the proper message, all right? Now, let's come back to Acts 2. In the Pentecost account, I'm going to read to you, and I'm going to show you three very important symbols that's used in Acts chapter 2, okay? And it says this in verse 2 to 3, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. There are three very important symbols here in Acts chapter 2. Number one is wind, number two is tongues, and number three is fire. Okay, too bad it wasn't earth, wind, and fire. Okay, it's just tongues, wind, and fire. Okay, now the tendency for us is to always focus on the tongues. Right? Especially when we come from a charismatic church, the focus mainly will always be on the tongues. But actually, there are two more signs. There was actually wind and there was actually fire. Okay, so I need you to keep these three things in mind. Now, why does God do that? Why not just tongues? Why was there wind? Why was there fire in that place? Okay, why was, are all these symbols important? In order to understand the significance of what happened at Pentecost, right, I need to bring you back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Okay? And this is where I'll do a bit of Bible study, okay? <clears throat> and hopefully I will end by 12 today. Okay? <laughs> yeah. So in order to give you a fuller understanding of Pentecost, right? Let me bring you back to the Garden of Eden. Okay? Now, at creation, God created man. And man was one with God. The Bible says that Adam and Eve were walking in the garden and they heard the sound a lot in walking in the garden. It means that God's presence was literally there. They could enjoy God's presence wherever they went. Okay, they could fellowship with Him. They were one, same place, can walk together. Okay, at creation. Okay, Genesis 3 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Right, but we all know the story. What happened after that was sin. Sin caused a separation of men from the presence of God. In fact, man was driven out of the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. Okay? And something very interesting to note is this, that God's physical presence, right, was not present on earth. If you read the Bible carefully, it was never present on earth from that point onwards all the way to the time of Moses. The next time that God's presence made a proper um, uh, a display of itself, proper manifestation, was when Moses met God at Mount Sinai. Okay, so this is where we come to Mount Sinai. Okay, we, the, first, the first time the presence of God manifested itself was when Moses saw that bush and that bush started to, to be uh, engulfed with flames. Right? And it was burning, but it was not consumed. Okay? And Moses looked at that. It's like, eh? Can't be, 
a bit different from what MOE taught me. Like, when it burns, it's supposed to burn, right? But this one is like, it's not burning. Fire. The symbol there was fire. It symbolized the presence of God. The presence of God. And when after the exodus from Egypt, when Moses brought all the Israelites, the first place he brought them to was the same mountain where the burning bush was. And there, the Lord God came down and manifest his presence to the whole of Israel. Let's read that. Okay? Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. <clears throat> on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on the, on the mountain. On it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a, a clean. Okay? And the whole mountain trembled greatly. Note this uh, fire. The presence of God was symbolized by fire. And God came down that mountain, consumed the mountain, burned the whole mountain. And I want you to note as well that the only person that was allowed up to that mountain was Moses. No one else, not even Joshua, the one that we always say, you know, when Moses left the tabernacle, he stayed behind to minister to the Lord. Not even Joshua, but only Moses, the friend of the Lord, was allowed into the presence of God. Okay? Then we all know what happened. The moment, <clears throat> the moment uh, God gave to Moses the two tablets that contained the, actually the, the Ten Commandments itself, Moses came down, okay, saw the people worshipping the golden calf. Right? And God's anger burned against the Israelites. And God actually told Moses that, okay, from now onwards, you guys can go into the promised land, but my, my presence will not go with you. My presence will not go with you. And that is where Moses actually interceded for the presence of God. And he says, God, unless your presence go with us, goes with me, do not send us from here. Do not send us for here. Moses interceded for the people. And that's a famous verse we always use in our prayer meetings and sometimes in our sermons as well. Moses interceded, God, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us from here. Because we want your presence, God. Your presence is everything. So from that moment onwards, the presence of God rested with Israel. But it was confined in one place at one time in the tabernacle. Okay, in the tabernacle, uh, the, the presence of God was there. If you can see the next picture, this is roughly what it looks like, artist impression. Okay? Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. I mean, what a sight it will be. It's an amazing sight. And Sinai was also very significant because it was the place where God renewed his covenant with Israel, the children of Abraham. Okay, the descendants of Abraham. He renewed his covenant with them and he instituted the sacrificial system. All right? And this is where the, the, all the Israelites will come and they will actually offer their sacrifices to atone for the sins that they did. Okay? I always imagine you know, if the sacrificial system today is in church, right, in our atrium today, I mean, what a sight it will be. You'll see animals all over and then you see a pastor band dancing all this, all cutting all the animals, blood everywhere. It's like, wow, what a sight. You know, thank God we live in the new covenant. It's like, if not, our ashes were to stay until tomorrow you know, to clean up the whole place. 
it's going to be crazy, right? But that was the scene in the Old Testament. That was, you know, when they cut the, 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 the neck of the, the, the lambs and all that, you know, the blood, you're supposed to allow the blood to come out. is to show you the impact of what your sin does, not just to God, but to everyone else. To show you how gruesome, how terrible that is and how holy God is. So the priests, you know, they really have to look that every lamb, every animal that sacrificed is worthy of the sacrifice. Okay? So they will check every single lamb and then after that, they will bring all these animals and then they'll burn it. They'll sacrifice it to the Lord on the altar. Okay? Thank God we don't do that anymore. <clears throat> now, one point that I want you to note is this. The sacrificial system was there because they needed forgiveness of sins and in order for God's presence to continually be in Israel. Okay, that's what the sacrificial system was for. All right? And you will notice this, that the presence of God remained in Israel in the tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? And God never commanded Israel to return to Sinai. Never. Because God's presence was with them. Okay, remember the story of David and they were, they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant anyhow, right? And this guy called Uzzah, he went to touch it and then he died. It shows you that the presence of God was actually in the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so let me fast forward a little bit. Now, after the time of Moses, the presence of God was no longer in the tabernacle, but it entered into the temple. Okay, and we read this um, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 1 to 3. David wanted to build a, a temple for the Lord, a house for the Lord. But the Lord said, Nehemiah, you know, it's okay. Your son will actually do it for you. Okay, and in <clears> 2 <throat> Chronicles, we read this account that after Solomon built the temple, okay, the presence of God came. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1 to 2, he says this, fire once again, what's the symbol there? Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and sacrifices. The glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the whole house. So once again, you can see that symbol of fire. It entered into the temple and God's presence was in the temple. Okay, and after that, the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. It was rebuilt by Ezra, Nehemiah. And then we have this guy called King Herod. Okay, King Herod came onto the scene and he expanded the temple to what we call the second temple. And this temple was very big compared to the first one. And one of the possible reasons why he's, he did that was that because um, bigger temple means faster you know, the processing of all the, the sacrifices, increase of temple tax. I have more money. Okay, so that's the possible reason why he expanded the temple. But I want to show you that actually the temple still contained the glory of the Lord, still contained the presence of the Lord. Okay, now this is where we come to the time of Christ and this is where things get very interesting. Okay, are you guys okay so far? Sorry, a lot of facts today, but I'm bringing it somewhere, okay? So just bear with me, okay? Now, when Christ came, the presence of God was still at the temple, okay? Because Jesus said this in Matthew 23, said that whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. It shows you that even though Christ was on earth, the presence of God still resided in the temple 
in Jerusalem. All right? But something very strange happened when Jesus was on earth. Okay? Jesus went around forgiving sins. Do you remember the story of the paralytic man? Okay? The, his friends actually pushed him through the roof to get him to Jesus. And Jesus did not heal him immediately. But Jesus rather, he said this, that your, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, you remember, for a Jewish person, right, this is outrageous, you know. Okay, and that's why they, they ask this question, like, who can forgive sin? Why is this guy talking like this? There is no way that a man can utter this kind of words. It's blasphemy. Alright? But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven because he was God. And wherever he went, the presence of God was. He was in the temple, but wherever Jesus went, he was God. Therefore, the presence of God is wherever he went. And all of a sudden, you start to realize that actually, in Christ, heaven and earth meet. The presence of God is wherever Christ went. And forgiveness of sin is in Christ because he forgives sins. And therefore, you realize that actually, uh, the temple is not necessary anymore. Because all I need is to come to Christ and to ask Him for forgiveness. I don't need to sacrifice all these things at the temple anymore. Because all I need is forgiveness from Christ. And I have forgiveness. Okay? So when Christ came on the earth, the temple almost became unnecessary. That's why you see that in the teachings of Christ, there wasn't an emphasis to go to the temple to spend time, you know, doing all the ritual sacrifices and all that because in Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. Okay? And last week, we learned that actually after Jesus did all his amazing work on the cross at Calvary, he ascended into heaven. Okay? He ascended into heaven. Now, the ascension of Christ, the work of Christ on the cross is very significant for us as Christians. Sometimes we don't understand um, the significance of it because you must un- remember this that for the, the sacrificial system right in order for us to atone for our sins it requires a sacrifice that's so unblemished so clean so pure that it disqualifies every human being on earth none of us are qualified to be a sacrificial lamb none of us it takes only someone pure, someone holy, someone undefiled, someone that is perfect to be the atonement for man's sins. And that's why only God, only God fits into the category. And that's why Jesus had to come and pay the price for all of our sins. Because we can't. We can't. There's no other sacrifice worthy to atone for our sins. And that is why what Jesus did on the cross is so significant for us because he bought not just our forgiveness of our sins, but also from now onwards, we have direct access to God. We have direct access to God. We don't need the temple anymore. Wherever you go, you can pray to God. You don't need to pray in Jerusalem, in the temple mount. 
Okay, and that's why Paul writes to the Corinthians. Um, he says this powerful verse that in Christ, all of God's promises is yes and amen. Because Christ fulfilled everything that the temple was supposed to do, or the temple was pointing to. So because of Christ, the temple becomes redundant. Redundant. Okay? But here's the problem. So Jesus ascended into heaven. So how? The presence of God ascended with him. is still at the temple. So if God's work stopped there, right, we will have an issue. Because now every time we want to assess God's presence, we need to go to Jerusalem. Alright? So that is where Pentecost comes. Pentecost comes. So that the presence of God can be wherever his disciples are. So that's why Pentecost is so significant. Okay? And it is it's mind-blowing to think about it. If you remember the, the scene in the temple, right? They have to do all this cleansing, purification work and all that, right? In order to make that place holy, to host God's presence. But yet, right now, what Scripture is teaching us is this, that the Spirit of God at Pentecost came and dwelt in us. It means every single one of you that's seated here today, God has deemed you holy enough to hold the presence of God. The presence of God is in you. You are holy enough because of what Christ has done for you. That wherever you are, that is where the presence of God is. Isn't it amazing? That at Pentecost, the presence of God came. Not the symbol again. Fire came down. The presence of God came. Filled the believers. Okay? And this is where I want to bring us back to that history lesson just now. Okay? This is where it happening in the temple of Jerusalem is so significant. Because, remember, where was the presence of God? The presence of God is in the temple. So when Pentecost happened, the presence of God is no longer in the temple. It entered into every single believer that believed in Christ. So the temple becomes redundant. Okay? So New, New Testament Christians, we have this treasure, we have this gift because of Pentecost. It is the day when God says, you know, my presence is wherever my children are. No longer confined to a single place. No longer confined to a mountain or to a temple. But wherever my children are, my presence is. You know how powerful is that? Do you know that Moses would only dream of something like that to happen? And yet it's fulfilled in every single one of us. Okay, you are holy enough to host the presence of God. Okay, so let me come to the last part of the sermon. What is the impact of Pentecost for us as believers? Okay, what happened as a result of Pentecost? Of course, we all know there was the empowerment of the believer for greater works. All the giftings get um, you, uh, distributed to the body of Christ. All right? But let me just share with you two things which I feel is important for us to remember about Pentecost. Number one is this. When God's Spirit came, when God's spirit came, it restored man's spirit to be alive and to be able to connect with God once again. Before that, man was not able to access God. Only at the temple, through the priests, through the Levites. 
But now, because of Pentecost, because of what Christ has done, the Spirit of God has come into us, awakened our spirits, and our spirits now have access to the Heavenly Father. Okay? Okay, let me read to you Acts chapter 2, verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Again, note that, that uh, symbol there, wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Wind symbolizes the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's actually from the Greek word called ruah. Sorry, the Hebrew word called ruah, which means wind. Okay, now what does this, pass, this uh, verse here remind you of? Okay, I'm not sure about you, but for me, this verse reminds me of when God made Adam. Okay, if you look at Genesis 2, 7, the Lord formed the man of, uh, <clears throat> of, of dust from the ground and breathed, and breathed into his nostrils. So at Pentecost, it is as though God breathed life once again into man. God breathed life once again into man. All right? And man is the only living thing on earth in which God breathed his life, breathed his breath into us. No other animals, no other part of creation, only human beings. And that's why we are made in the image of God. Okay? So in Acts, it's as though God breathed into man once again. And man, our spirits, became alive. We're able to connect once again to our Heavenly Father. And what's the evidence of it? You see in verse 42 to 43, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Suddenly, their spirits were awakened to connect with the living God. Suddenly, their spirits were awakened. Okay? And the 120 of them, plus the 3,000 that were saved, all suddenly started to thrive in their life. They did amazing things. All of this was the result of their spirits becoming alive because of the Holy Spirit. And something very interesting for you to note is this, that on the day that Moses on the mountain of God in Mount Sinai, on the day he received the law, on the day the law was given to men about how holy God is, 3,000 people died because of the golden calf. And it's very interesting that on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God is given, 3,000 became alive. 3,000, 3,000. And I don't think Scripture has coincidences. God left it in there intentionally to show us. And uh, it brings to memory, you know, what Paul says about um, the spirit and the law. The letter of the law kills, but the spirit of God gives life. So when the spirit is given, man's life, the capital L, becomes alive. Your spirit becomes alive. Okay, so that's the first impact. The second impact of Pentecost is this, that there is that restoration of man's heart for each other. One of the most significant things that Pentecost does for us, when the Spirit of God comes into us, is that it restores our ability to relate to one another, to relate to each other in a way that honors the Lord, that Christ would relate to us. 
Okay, now uh, let me bring you back to the festival of weeks in the Old Testament, which is actually the rule of Pentecost. And if you look at that um, passage right at the end that talks about the festival of weeks, it actually has this verse that says this, uh, this is the Lord commanding them, uh, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its age, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So actually the festival of weeks, right, one of the purposes is so that the poor and needy in our midst are actually blessed as well. Okay, we take care of the poor and needy. It teaches us to take care of them. Now what happened at Pentecost? Same thing. When the Spirit of God came upon them, not only did it ignite their spirit to connect with God, to love God more, but it also ignited their hearts and their spirit to be able to connect well with the people around them who have in need. Acts 2 verse 42 to 45 says this, All who believed were together and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is one of the direct results of when the Spirit of God comes into an individual. And actually, I will actually advocate this, that a lot of times we think that tongues is very important. And it is. If you study scripture, right, actually there's multiple evidence that actually tongues is one of the signs that the Holy Spirit has entered into the individual. But actually for me, right, all these years being in full-time ministry, pastoring people, right, I always find that the greatest sign for me that a person is spirit-filled is in how he, he relates to other people. Not so much whether you speak in tongues, but how you relate to other people. Because by yourself, you can't. We are all selfish in nature. But when you have the Spirit of God comes into you, it transforms you. You see someone in your cell that has need, right? You cannot just walk away and say, hey, you know, hope, hope the best for you, you know, hope someone else take care of you, I'll walk away. You can't. Because the person of who you are has changed. And you can't help but say, hey brother, how can I help you? Hey sister, how can I help you? It transforms you totally. That's one of the impact of the Spirit of God coming to us. Right? And in Singapore context, a lot of times, you know, is we, 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 we deal with the poor and needy in our midst as like something we need to check a box. Okay. Uh, this man is asking for a donation. Okay, I better give. Okay, give. Okay, settle. All right. You realize that all these are just rituals. It doesn't change who you are. Inside of you, it's not changed. But when your inside is changed, your spirit, your heart is changed by the Holy Spirit. It breathes life. The river flows because the source of the river has changed. So the heart needs to change first. The Spirit needs to change our hearts first. If not, the river that comes out right, I don't know what kind of river it's going to be. La, because the source is different. Right? So in Acts, they actually ask this question, what do I have that someone that's needy and poor needs that I can bless them with? It changes their relationship to one another. And I also want to tell you that maybe that's, Possibly the reason why every single one of the disciples, they went to the ends of the earth to share the gospel. 
not because of some vision. Oh, we need to reach 5,000 people for Christ. Oh, you know, we must do this. Must do this. It's, it's, not those, it's not like that. They went simply because they loved people. They carried the heart of God with them. They carried the heart of God with them wherever they went. So they did out of who they are. Not, not out of some vision. Not out of some goal. But they became... They carried the heart of Christ and when they went out, they can't help but share the gospel to love people, to change, to be changed agents wherever they went. It's not something that they had to do. It was something that who they are. It became who they are. Even to the point that every single one of the disciples, they gave their life. They suffered the worst possible, um, if you see the next slide, they suffered the worst possible life that they could have. Every single one of them. Never complain once. Why? Spirit changed. The source changed. And therefore they went out and they just gave their lives. Because they lived for something greater, their spirits would change. So in order for us as a church to allow this river to flow, we need the Holy Spirit to say, come and change us first. Come and change us first. All right? Now, let me summarize um, everything I shared about Pentecost uh, in the last segment, and then I'll bring it to a close, okay? I believe that Pentecost was God restoring man's ability to love him and to love one another. If you really study the passage, this is what I believe, that it is God empowering man to relate with him spirit to spirit again and our ability to love one another. That is what Pentecost is all about. And that's why the spirit was given to change who we are so that we're able to relate correctly with the Lord and we're able to relate correctly to one another. Okay. Now let me share you some concluding thoughts. Okay. I've always asked myself this question, you know, um, why didn't God stop his work when Christ died on the cross? Oh, sorry, when Christ ascended to heaven. Why didn't he stop there? Why did he still need a Pentecost to happen? Why did he still need that? And I believe the answer is this. You know, uh, one of my friends in Australia uh, who was a mentor to me many years, uh, he actually shared this with me. He actually said that, you know, and there's some things that I'm still single, lah, okay? He said this to me, there's some things about God that you'll just never understand until you become a father, okay? I became a father and a lot of things I understand. You know, how difficult children are. <laughs> you know, how every day you wake up uh, praying that you won't kill your children. No, no, not so bad, lah, Okay. <laughs> Especially during school holidays, uh, yeah, you know, you know, God help me. Uh, <laughs> but there's some things about God that you never understand until you become a father. And I think Pentecost is one thing that I never really understood until I became a father. You see, the problem for God has always been the problem of presence. That because of sin, we have been separated from God. Or let me just paint to you in a way that maybe those of you who are married understand. Because of sin, a father cannot have fellowship with his children. Do you know how hard that is as a father? That I can never see my children face to face? 
that I can never talk to them face to face, have fellowship with them. It is hard, you know. And that's why Pentecost is so significant for God. Because it's the day when God's presence comes into men. And God and men are joined together forevermore. That is the beauty of Pentecost. That is the true treasure of Pentecost. You see, God has always been pursuing us as a father. And because of Pentecost, all of us here today, we have gained back our sonship. We have gained back the Father's presence. We no longer just call God, God, Mighty One, Everlasting uh, uh, Great One, or something like that, the Almighty God. We call Him as well, Father. We call Him as well, Father. And that is the greatest treasure of Pentecost. And not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well, all of us. And God made it possible that from this day onwards, you are no longer an orphan. You're no longer someone that's without goal, without a vision, without any purpose, identity in your life. But from this day onwards, from Pentecost onwards, you are a son of the living God. You are a daughter of the living God. And God's presence is with you forevermore. Okay, and I just want to read to you this beautiful verse. It says this. Okay, maybe I'll just go to the last verse. Romans 8.15, it says this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That is Pentecost. I know there's a lot of emphasis on the power, but I feel the first emphasis on Pentecost should be the presence of God. You're no longer an orphan. I believe that this is the greatest treasure of Pentecost, that God's presence right now is in us, with us, wherever we go. Emmanuel, God with us forevermore. And... As I bring this whole service to a close, you know, a lot of times for us, when we relate with the Holy Spirit, a lot of times we come to Him because of what He can do and not who He is. It's a little bit like we go like a, a, a woman marrying a man who has a lot of money and the only reason that she's relating to Him is because He has a lot of money. And the Holy Spirit sometimes say, yes, I've all this power that I want to give you, but the, the, the thing that I really want to give you the most is my presence. When God the Father says to us, you know, like, the thing that I treasure the most is not what you can do for me, what this church can do for me, but how you spend time with me as a church. Whether you treasure my presence, whether you treasure when I'm in your life, whether you treasure my presence wherever you are, because that is the heart of the Father for the church. You know, church, I believe that the word or the rima of this passage for us, for us as a church in this season is this, that we need to once again treasure the presence of God in our lives. Treasure the presence of God in our midst. You know, I... I've come to the place in ministry where, you know, I, I don't bother that much about growth. 
I don't bother that much of whether our church grows to 10,000 no, or okay, 20,000, that, that kind of thing. You know, all, all I care about is, God, are you with us? That's the thing that matters the most to me. You know, I, I'm, I'm okay if, you know, if people fall asleep during my sermon. Okay, maybe not so okay. Lah. Okay, but you know, I, I'm okay if people don't respond to all the calls. You know, but what I want to know the most is, God, are you with me? Are you in our midst? That's the thing that is the most important to me. And I believe that as a church, we need to come back to that place to appreciate Pentecost. God with us. Once again. And as I was praying this message, I remember the, the story of the prodigal, the prodigal son. You know, as a father, you know, like when your son has gone wayward and your son comes back, What's the most important thing to you? Is it the putting on the, all the clothing, the, 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 the rings on the finger, shoes on the feet that symbolizes uh, identity and all that? You know, if I'm a father, my son comes back to me. The most important thing for me is that my son is with me. Not what my son can do. I don't care because I love him so much. And that's God's heart for us as a church. It's not about what we can do as a church, but how much He simply just treasures our presence in Him, our presence with Him. And I believe in this season, moving forward, we need to once again learn to treasure God's presence in our midst. You know, God, I, I don't care, you know, today if, if nothing happens at the front or that, but God, I just want to know that You are with us. You are with us. Because we are here for you. All that we want is you. Not what you can do for us. Not how much you can bless us. But simply you. In our midst. Let us return to that place. Like Moses said. God, if your presence does not go with us. Do not send us from here. Because your presence is my number one treasure in life. Your presence Thank you for listening to the River Life Podcast. We hope that you've encountered Jesus through the Word. If you'd like to connect with community or find out more about River Life Church, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or head on over to riverlife.org.sg. God bless and have a great week ahead.